I got to say, it is great to be able to speak to a room that has people in it. For months, I have been speaking into a camera, and, uh, and Paul has been my one uh, audience member, and it is so good to welcome some of you back, so thank you. And for those of you who are not yet able to join us in in-person worship, I'm, I'm welcome to you too. I'm so glad that we can provide this opportunity to connect virtually, and it's something that will continue even after the whole pandemic craziness is gone. We think that this is a great outreach for the, for the gospel. So, and when you're able to return, we'll be here waiting for you. So good morning, all of you. Great to be together. We are returning to a journey through the book of Exodus. And in many ways, it could not be more timely. We are, of course, in the midst of a, of a global plague. We're dealing with this global pandemic. And last week, we saw as the Lord used not one but nine different plagues to secure the freedom of his people. To, to, to set his people free. Even more importantly than that, though, we discovered that the Lord used these plagues as an opportunity for him to declare his sovereignty, to say that he was the king of kings, he was the Lord of lords, he was the God of the universe. Because every one of those plagues, as we discovered last week, was a frontal assault against the gods of Egypt. It was against the God of the Nile, against the God of the frogs, against the God of the cattle, against the God of the sun. Every one of the attacks of those last nine plagues was a frontal assault against the, the idolatries of Egypt. But when we come to this morning, to the tenth plague, we might say, well, what is the Egyptian god that is being attacked here? The angel of death. What was the god that is being uh, assaulted in this plague? Well, actually, it was the most visible god of all in the Egyptian pantheon. It was Pharaoh. You see, Pharaoh was considered also a god. Pharaoh was considered the incarnate son of Amun-Ra, who was the Egyptian, the supreme Egyptian god. This Pharaoh, this hard-hearted Pharaoh, was considered to be their god. Well, his hard heart is about to be broken as God de delivers his devastating judgment. So I want you to listen to this horrific story of the last of the ten plagues as it comes to us from Exodus chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who was sitting on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us through this hard and harsh word, this judgment against all idolatry. May we be found to be faithful. And may we be pricked in our conscience in that way in which we need to be more obedient to you. For we ask it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. COVID-19 is playing no favorites. It strikes down the old, but it has struck down some of the young as well. It strikes down the rich as well as the poor. It strikes down the famous and the more obscure. And we're also discovering that it strikes down the believers, the religious, as well as the irreligious. And this was true, by the way, for many of the plagues in this story in the book of Exodus. 
As you look through it carefully, you'll discover that four or five of the plagues that uh, afflicted the Egyptians also afflicted the Israelites. They were not delivered from every one of these plagues. And it turns out that we discover in this story that sometimes God's people are called to endure hardship. Sometimes God uses crisis to drive people to his knees, to bring them to repentance, to draw them back to himself. And it could be, since the Lord has not seen fit yet to lift the plague upon this land, it could be that his purposes in that respect have not yet been completed. It could be that he's still urging us, calling us back to himself. I can say that for Cindy and me, one of the most profound parts of the COVID is that we have been praying together in ways that we have never done in our 35, uh, 31 years. It just seems like 35. 31 years. 31 years of, of marriage. Uh, it has drawn us together closer to the Lord, closer to each other, and in spiritual battle. And, and my prayer in this crisis has been that we will not, it will not be wasted on God's people. That all that we've gone through, what a shame it would be if at the end of it, we're no different. We have not been changed in any way. My prayer is that God will drive us to our knees. And that we will cry out for repentance. In repentance for our idolatries that we may have been ignoring. That we will be drawn closer to the Lord than we were when times were good. And we really didn't think we needed God very much. Well, we need God now. And I pray that our hearts are turning back towards him through this moment. Sometimes Christians suffer because it is God's purpose to draw us back to himself. And sometimes God, in his mercy, in his power, delivers his people. And that's exactly what happened in this, the tenth plague. Exodus tells us that the destroyer, that's the language that is used to describe what is also called the death angel that the destroyer went through Egypt at midnight, striking down every firstborn child. How many firstborns are there in, in the crowd here today? You would be gone. I would have been struck down. My daughter Rachel would have been struck down if we were in Egypt at that time. Can you imagine the horror of that? Can you imagine the sounds of the weeping and the wailing that you would have heard coming from every single household as one by one the death angel struck down, took the firstborn? The the scripture tells us that there was a great cry that came up out of Egypt and I'll bet there had never been a lament before or after like the one that night when the death angel came calling. But what about the Hebrews? What about the people who were living up north in the land of Goshen? What happened to them on that horrible night? Well, God demonstrated his power by delivering them. God chose to save his people. And it turns out that God's salvation required something of them. The other times that he spared them from a plague, he just decided to do it. They didn't do a thing. In this instance, God said, if you want to be saved... If you want to be marked as my people, then you got to listen to what I tell you, and you need to obey. And so let's listen to what God told them, again, from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and following. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, 
then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. This is animal blood. This is hyssop. And this is what the people were called to do. I imagine it was as messy then as it was just now. The text continues, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of the Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Kind of gruesome. This crisis was a defining moment for the people of Israel. God was about to deliver them after more than four centuries of slavery, 430 years of oppression. And after nine plagues, where Pharaoh had an opportunity to repent, he could have saved Egypt, but in every instance, his heart was hardened. And now God brings about his most devastating judgment. And in this moment, the people of Israel were reborn. I want you to see that. In verse 2, in fact, we are told God says, you're going to start all over with a brand new calendar. Have you ever noticed this? He says, this is going to be a new calendar, a new day, a new month, a new year, a new beginning. It's like God was saying, you are literally going to start over again. I'm going to press the reset button and you are literally starting over again. On our vacation, I told Cindy at one point as I was just reflecting on all that we are in the midst of, I said, I'm 63 years old, and I feel like I'm starting ministry all over again. Of course, I was exaggerating, and I was whining, uh, but that was the way I was feeling at the moment. We are not starting all over again, and in fact, we are learning some really exciting new ways to be the church. Nevertheless, that was my moment to whine to my wife. In this case, though, it was true, literally true. It was a literal brand new start that was going to unify the people of God, draw them together. And all of the hardships, all of the oppressions that had broken them down and fragmented them, dispirited them, separated them, drawn them apart, all of that was going to be wiped away in a moment as here they were going to be brought together. Moses gave this message, God's message, to the entire congregation, as he calls it. Every household was going to do the same thing. 
They were going to take the, the blood of that lamb and they were going to splash it on the doorposts and the lintel of that door. Now think about that for a moment. What is going to happen when you take blood and splash it all over the door of your house? One of the things you're going to do is make yourself conspicuous. You're going to make your house stand out. You're going to be conspicuous to a, a culture that is mistreating them. A culture that hates them. A culture that is suspicious of them. A culture that has been using them. You're going to make yourself very conspicuous to them. But the other thing that this was doing was it was making them conspicuous to the Lord. In this act, when they obeyed him and spread this blood across the door of their house, they were declaring to God, we are yours. We're going to be marked by the blood of the Lamb. We're going to trust you, God, for our salvation. We are ready to go forward into a new future. And we will be conspicuously your people. The longer that COVID drags on, the more essential I believe it is for the followers of Jesus Christ to be conspicuous in our hope for Christ. Conspicuous to our fellow believers who might be timid or frightened, encouraging one another. But even more conspicuous to our unbelieving family and friends and neighbors about our confidence in a sovereign God who, despite all of the appearances, despite all of the press releases, is still, in fact, on the throne and in control and will have his way. And so I would ask of you this day, is there anything conspicuously Christian about the way you are responding to this plague? Anything that makes you stand out in a crowd? Or are you just kind of blending in? Are you praying in a way that is conspicuous? Are you trusting God in a way that is conspicuous? Are you, are you experiencing contentment in a surprising way that is conspicuous? Are you holding your tongue when others whine? Are you speaking out when untruth prevails? Are you defying in any way this culture of fear and discouragement that would crush our hope? Is there anything conspicuously Christian about your response to COVID-19 where the people would look to you and say, wow, that's different. You don't see that every day. I need to find out more about that. I've been thinking about that for us as a church. It strikes me that one of the ways that we could be conspicuous in this time would be to not hoard our resources in a season when it would be tempting to do just that. There are a lot of churches, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of families that are hunkering down, holding on and hoarding. And maybe one of the ways we could be conspicuous would be to do just the opposite. I've been really thinking a lot, asking myself this question as a pastor. Here we have this huge church. So what is it that we as a large church with this huge building do when we cannot use that building the way that we once did? How can we witness our confidence, our conspicuous confidence in Christ? By the way, it's a building that because of your incredible continued faithfulness, it looks like this building might be paid off by the end of this year. Congratulations. Thank you for that. In the midst of all this, amazing. But only months ago, this building housed uh, thousands of people who were making their way through into the various nooks and crannies of this building throughout the week. And now, at least for the time being, our, our gatherings are smaller. They're more restricted. And obvious, all of us, those who are here, those of us who are worshiping at home, we're looking forward to that day when we can confidently walk in, sit right down next to each other, give each other a hug again, 
But that's not this moment. So what in, the con- in this present moment do we do with this huge resource that God has blessed us with, but it is sitting largely unused? And I began to, and then I, as I was thinking about all of this, verse 4 inspired me. Listen to it. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. They, they pool their resources. And I, as I read of that, I was thinking about, about those churches in Gig Harbor who are meeting in school buildings across our community and who are suddenly homeless, suddenly orphaned. They love Christ. They're proclaiming Christ. They've been worshiping in these public spaces and suddenly, bam, they're shut down. They have no place together. And it struck me, here is an opportunity for the, for the body of Christ to come together. What if Chapel Hill offered its building to the orphan churches in our community until they can get back on their feet? Just like this neighbor in Exodus who says, here, share our lamb, share our meal, share our table, share our home. I think this would please God. The devil would like nothing more than for this plague to close down churches and to set back the work of the gospel and to discourage believers and to throw pastors out of work and to crush their sense of call. And we are certainly not living in a culture that is encouraging or appreciative of what we do. We are not considered an essential industry. We are not granted the same privileges that other organizations that are similar to us are granted. We are frequently labeled super spreaders on the basis of one event up north. It is not surprising then that experts are predicting that by the time this pandemic lifts, thousands of churches will be closed down forever, including as many as one to 200 out of our 600 congregations in our denomination. But what if something different happened in Gig Harbor? What if we said, we're going to share our building? And what if smaller churches had a chance to not only survive, but to thrive. What if the non-believing community around us got wind of this and said, look how those Christians set aside their differences. Look how they come together in love. Look how they come together in crisis. Maybe the church does matter to this community. Maybe those Christians are more essential to us than we had imagined them first to be. Well, I'm very pleased to tell you that our elders voted Thursday night to extend this very offer to the homeless churches in our community. We're going to invite them to come and find a place in our building to continue to worship until that day when they can be back up on their feet on their own spaces again. And we don't know how it's all going to work. We know there's a lot of details to be worked out. We don't even know who or if anyone will take us up on the offer. But we're going to make the offer. Because and, and, and I'm convinced at the very least this is going to unite further the body of Christ in our community in defiance of a plague that the devil would use to tear down the kingdom but that the Holy Spirit could use to grow the kingdom. We are marked people too. You realize that, right? Each one of us bears the mark of God. Just like the doors over those Israelite homes were marked with the blood of a Passover lamb, we have been marked by the blood of the perfect, permanent Passover lamb. Exodus gives us a glimpse 1,200 years into the future when a guy named John the Baptist would point in the distance to his cousin, 
Jesus of Nazareth and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when Jesus gathered with his disciples for that last supper, what meal exactly were they sharing together? This one, the Passover, this meal. Jesus broke bread and he poured out the wine and he claimed this ancient ritual for himself. In essence, he said, this was predicting me and now it has been fulfilled. The body of Christ, it's this bread being broken for you and I'm going to pour out my blood and I'm going to save you through it. And on the next day when Jesus was crucified and his blood flowed onto that cross, that blood became our protection against our death angel. To, to the outsider, all of this talk about the blood of Jesus, it frankly can seem kind of bizarre. If you're an unchurched person, we, you might find yourself saying, what in the world are you talking about? Well... What we're trying to talk about is what the New Testament repeatedly talks about. Our hymn says there's power in the blood. And, the, and we're only telling you what the scriptures say. In Christ we have the redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins, says Ephesians 1. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, says Hebrews 9. Every human being who has ever lived possesses a virus that is far deadlier than corona. The Bible calls that sin. And we sometimes think about sin as those naughty little things that we do, but we know we ought not to do. Sin is far more pestilent than that, far more virulent than that. And especially in these days of corona, it is a vivid reminder to say that a better way to think about sin would be to imagine that it is the most deadly, most merciless, most virulent virus to ever infect a human race. Every one of us has it. And if we ignore the virus of sin, if we let it run its course, it will do the same thing in every single person. It will kill us spiritually. It will steal our life, our peace, our joy, and separate us from our loving God and the promised land which he has offered to us. And that is the bad news. That is the truly bad news that, that provides the backdrop for the most incredible good news ever pronounced because there is a cure for the virus. And the cure for this virus is found in the antibodies of the shed blood of Christ. That's where our cure is. The blood which he spread upon the crossbeam and the upright of that horrible instrument of death. And so on this day of worship, on this day of communion, again, you and I are going to receive the mark of the lamb upon ourselves. Once again, we are going to be reminded of the protection that only Jesus can offer. Once again, we are going to receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who alone can empower us to live lives that are faithful and peace-filled and conspicuous witness for the life-giving power of Jesus Christ, even in a plague. And so I invite you to the table of the Lord this day. For those of you who are at home, if you would take out the bread and each individual should go ahead and have a piece of bread for themselves and a cup that they're going to drink to share in the juice. For those of you who are here, you're going to find this, this was handed to you on the way in. It's a little bit tricky, but once you get it, you'll figure it out. You'll tear off the top piece and that's where you get the bread and then you'll carefully tear off. So don't do it yet. 
you're getting ahead of me. And then you'll tear off, tear off the bottom one, and that'll get us to the juice. Be careful of the bottom one. you got to kind of wiggle it to, to get it off. But this is what we're going to do. We're going to share together. We're going to remember that day when the people of God were marked by the blood of the Lamb. Join me in prayer. So, Father, we thank you for this moment when we remember whose we are. We remember the God who did not leave us to our own devices, who did not leave us in our sickness, in our, in our virus, but came to us to save us, to set us free, to heal us, to purify us. And, Lord, we need that reminder today, and we need that experience this, this morning. In all of the ways that we doubt you, in all of the ways that we continue to be idolatrous, in all of the ways that we fear you're not going to come through, these are all moments that need to remind us of your faithfulness to us, a faithfulness that is illustrated by the blood of Jesus Christ as it poured out on that cross beam and the, and the upright. And so meet us this day, Lord. Meet us in this time of communion, for we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen.